I'm John Murphy. And I'm Christian Humes. And you're listening to Watch World. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. You are listening to Watch World. We are continuing our James Bond extravaganza. And we are transitioning to a, I would say, Gen X period of uh, <laughs> James Bond with a often forgotten, but still quite, I think, well done and important piece of the timeline, which is the Timothy Dalton era. And we are talking about the living daylights in this is 1987. Christian, what did you think about this? Um, I really enjoyed it. I think there's a lot of great stuff here. And considering I couldn't even remember which bond this was, and I'd never seen any of his stuff, I wasn't prepared to like it as much as I did. But before I say anything else, I do want to just say, if you noticed last week, uh, we put out Casino Royale. We actually started, for anyone that's been listening, James Bond before Game of Thrones, and then there was like a big gap. So I put that back out. Um, when James Bond is done, I'm going to reorder everything so that the episodes are all in order and everything like that. So if you see the season numbers and stuff change when this is all done, that's why. But I just want people to know because uh, we kind of needed to catch back up with things. That being said, John, man. This this movie from right off the bat is one of my favorite openings so far. It was such a good cold. I mean, the Bond cold opens are always good, but this one wasn't goofy. It was like cool. It was cool. It was not one, not two, but three double O's. Yeah, I mean, you. There's a lot of good things I think, especially, and it starts off really, really well. Overall, yeah, I think what I will say about this movie generally before we dive into specifics is. I like this movie because it takes a very practical, almost plot story and structure. Um, it feels very real. It deals with basically spies and arms dealers and sort of manipulation of countries and um, feels like it's kind of like this could have taken place more actually in the real world versus a lot of what we saw with both Connery and Roger Moore, which is like a lot of extravagant high stakes sort of fantasy almost spy world stuff and this is very much a more grounded but i think it works um in a lot of good ways compared to um i think i mentioned this this, this felt a lot like four your eyes only with roger moore but that one i think was a little too goofy at times maybe didn't take the more grounded plot seriously enough or and then when it did it didn't feel right and so this one actually feels like a like a better version of For Your Eyes Only. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything you've said there. I think, so like I did talk about in the past, if you've listened to it, I had problems with For Your Eyes Only. I mean, something I've said about a lot of the older Bonds is also just pacing, editing, things like that. That one I think I specifically felt pretty strongly about. Um, but this one, you know what I really liked about it? It it feels very time and place. You say it's Gen X, but all I could think was like, oh, this movie was really made in the Cold War. And not like, oh, it's like the Russians are these like weird villains or anything like that, but it was more like, oh, this is a really complicated situation and it's not just these two black and white sides. And sometimes we're, like, we're so interconnected, they still also have to work together, even though there's actually like all of this, uh, like it, it's like both a rivalry and like a, an enemy kind of situation at the same time. And the movie encompasses all of that. Like it feels yeah. both like the winding down and the height of the Cold War at all times in the movie. Yeah, no, I, I definitely I agree with that. Um, but the reason why I said Gen X is more because it's like darker and moodier at times. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Dalton himself is, is a very he's, the, I think, the darkest of the Bonds because I think he comes off very cold at times and very. He, he does. Yeah. And he so, does. And, 
Yeah, I um, I think I said it last week, but I didn't. You know, I didn't really. When you said the name Timothy Dalton, it didn't click for me. But I watched a year ago. I watched all of Chuck, and he ends up being he's like a villain in that. And I think he ends up playing a villain better. And he's not an ugly guy, but I feel like he doesn't have the same like handsomeness that the other Bonds all have in a way. I think because his his face is like very sharp and pointy, and it so is. it kind of has this. It does have a very villainous thing i think for us because we are not gen x we are millennials we grew up with timothy dalton more as a villain in our lives i think oh, sure because yeah. he's the villain in the rocketeer um you know it's like i love that movie yeah so it's like i think to us like we didn't really grow up with him as bond yeah and so and and i think that i that helps kind of play into it a little bit more i will say though so i think i mentioned this in prior episodes so they were re- they basically this Roger Moore had retired. They were rebooting the fran- you know, going with a new actor. They tested some different actors. Originally, they for this movie they had casted Pierce Brosnan. He he got the part, but then on the last day that he was actually going to get released from his Remington Steel contract, NBC called him up and said, "Hey, we're actually renewing it." So he had to bow out of being James Bond, even though it was his dream to be in James Bond. Um, and they also te- you guess who else they screen tested for this movie um okay uh it's well, it's, it's a long shot it's, it's a long old. shot it's all just tell me it's sam old. sam neil screen test oh you did tell me that yeah. um i i so i don't think sam neil's like an incredible uh, he's not a bad actor i don't think he's an incredible actor he's a good character actor i you don't sh- know if i can picture him as james bond you should look up his screen test for this they, they it's posted online how is it it's not bad it's just like it, but you're so used to Sam Neill as, you know, Dr. Grant. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, so it's like you kind of don't really see them as a Bond because Bond requires yeah. a little bit of like of that kind of sexy charm in some ways. Like, I could see him as a Craig Bond, but he's not a he's not a Brosnan Bond. They're two very different, two very different choices they looked at. Yeah, it was interesting. So. Yeah, so they, they ultimately end up with Dalton, I think, was, I think, probably their second choice. Um, Marion Diabo, who plays Kara in this movie, she actually wasn't uh, auditioned, but she played always the opposite for all these other screen tests. That, and then they, it was kind of like the, um, it was the Harrison Ford situation with Han Solo, where, like, he wasn't thought of for Han Solo, but he was being brought in as screen tests for all the other characters, and, and then George Lucas ultimately fell in love with them. Yeah. So that was the case for Miriam Diabo in this movie, where it's like she wasn't even considered for the role of Kara, but then they just liked her in, in all the for all the reads that they were like, you know, we'll just put you in here. <laughs> we'll cast you for it. It's funny. Like, I could actually picture Han Solo playing uh, Harrison Ford playing any other character. I don't think he would have been as good as the other people as he is as Han Solo. But like, yeah. he could have kind of done anything. You could have just stuck him in anything and people would have liked it, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, he has a very unique appeal. That's very yeah. hard to capture with other actors, but definitely, um, yeah. Uh, side note, total side note. But I was rewatching Air Force One recently with Harrison Ford, and I'm like, how did this oh. guy win? How did this guy win election? He's so cold and lifeless as a president. <laughs> you know, it's like there's no get off here. my plate. Yeah, I mean, he's great as an action hero, but I'm like, how did he get elected? It's a good but, question. Anyway, I ask that question to myself every day. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> I set myself up for that. Uh, yes, anyway, you did. Anyways, let's just dive into it. So we're at the Rock of Gibraltar for this opening. Great location. Cool, man. Um, 
I, I, the one, the one, I guess, campy part of this whole movie is is right here actually, which is M's office, which is on the back of this plane, and it's like ties in this whole thing of like how weird is M that he must have a like a, a full on office in almost every situation <laughs> he goes to. It's like a power plane. It's yeah. you know, it's like his Air Force One kind of a move. I, I appreciate it. It's weird. It is bizarre. Um, I mean, it's funny because you think he's in an office. And then it, as and it then, pulls yeah, back, you realize, yeah, you realize you're in a plane. So I, it's funny that they did it. It's just like thinking of all the times that MI6 has moved their offices into the field for random things. You're just like, man, how much are they spending on budget on just like office decoration? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would just, I'd like to think that they probably at least like, like in each hemisphere they've got, or at least each continent even. They've probably got like a mobile office. They've got like an air office, a sea office, and some like centralized city offices. Just ready to go yeah. at all times in case M needs to be somewhere. He's got his desk. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And there's, but, ha- there's just hidden hallways everywhere for Q. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Hidden, yeah. Hidden basements. Bookshelves with trap doors everywhere for Q. <laughs> yeah. It's great. So, and what's also cool about this opening is it's not a mission necessarily, it's an, a training exercise. Um, they're playing, I guess, a, a bunch of double O's, including Bond, are like playing this game of whoever can, I guess, capture or get to the infiltrate this like base on the Gibraltar rock. It's like wins. And so and all the guards have paintballs versus actual guns, which is kind of a it's a cool, interesting, different way to open a movie in which there's so much been so much action to have a sort of almost nonviolent opening in, in a lot of ways. It was very cool. But um, and this this is sort of what I say with the Cold War because the Cold War was like just there were so many escalations of like war games and things as like shows of power and it's like this couldn't be any more specifically tied to this exact period in time. Yeah, but also I think because so this whole thing with so there's an assassin within this group and he cuts the one guy one I think 004's rope first and then he put pulls down the tag and so the whole thing. Is that he's? They're leaving these messages because it's called Schmiet Spieniem, as I call it, or Deaths to Spies. Yeah, Deaths to Spies, which is from originally Casino Royale. Yes, uh, it's originally Casino Royale, and was only mentioned in one movie, which was From Russia with Love. Before this, yeah, and so yeah, I listened to the audiobook of Casino Royale when we did when we did that one, and so as as I'm watching this, I'm just like, why do I remember Schmiet? Like, why do why do I remember this? And then I was like, oh, the audiobook. <laughs> this was in the first. They did the the Schmidt guy. Yeah. And so, yeah. So the, that's what it's like. This is like, well, I think one that's pull going back to, I think, the original formulas of the book, I think, is sort of showing a new direction for this franchise. And um, that's what they're doing here. So it's like spies killing spies, which is pretty cool. Um, All spies must die. Yeah. And that's so, yeah, I mean, you get uh, basically... This guy kills off, I think, two. And he kills off some some guards too. Uh, he only kills double o four. I don't think double. No, I think he doesn't. Double o four dies. That's right. No, but he kills he kills other guards. Oh yeah, yeah. He he has like a sniper uh, silencer, and so he he shoots some other guards. But um, and so he yeah. So then he tries to escape in his truck, and there's this cool chase down these like narrow ass roads, which is really cool. Like being on top of that, and Bond jumps on top of it. Um, some great stuff. I, I overall, I think some great. You even have monkeys in this in this scene for some reason. I guess there's a lot of monkeys in Gibraltar's. <laughs> overall, I think really cool. Um, 
you know, gotta love a good car explosion in midair. Um, at the end of this, though, I will say, like, this kind of summarizes Dalton's, you know, how different his bond is versus the previous ones we've seen. And so when he lands on that woman's yacht and she's like, who are you? And then, <laughs> and then he's like, the way he says, he goes, Bond, James Bond. Like he said it so just rushed, like, and so kind of dismissive. Like, it's not like he's selling his name. He's just like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta nail that one the first time you do it, man. Yeah. That's even the, though, that's... You, <laughs> even though later, even though right after that, she's like, will you stay? And he's like, uh, make it two hours. I'll be there instead of an hour. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so he it's just needs an though. hour he just needs an hour you know? that's all you need he's got look he's got work to do john yeah yeah but you know he had to he had to i guess fulfill that woman's wishes i guess because she didn't she was over the playboys and whatever the other like thing that or whatever sure. type of guy that she was over but um she's just out on this boat in the ocean by herself <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, no one else on there so what do you think of this song and its credits, the credit sequence? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I like Aha. Yeah, uh-huh. I don't know if I actually listen to him anymore, but I used to. Yeah, it's it's an inter- like I think it's one of those songs, and this is like I, I put a lot of Bond songs in this category of. I don't think it's actually a good song, but I love it. Yeah, like it's a fun, catchy song, and uh, I think it's like a they're an interesting band and got interesting vocals. They just seem like weirdly like their volume seems low in, the, in this song. Doesn't it seem like that? Uh, the song sounds more ethereal for AHA than they have ever sounded before. Because sometimes they their voices almost become like an ambient part of the music. Yeah. Um, and it really like it it like harmonized sometimes so well with the music that it was almost like they were just using their voices as instruments <laughs> in yeah. the song. But I, I liked it. I it was like very atmospheric for a James Bond song. Yeah, no, it's it's a great song. Yeah, it's just, I felt like when you get to the chorus, it's like, oh, living yeah. daylights. It's like, it, yeah, you're right. It, like almost the, the, the music and the, and the vocals like are almost even. So they kind of get, yeah. get lost in the, yeah. in the, in the thing. So um, I did want to say one thing, which I had a thought about. Um, so I was back home last week. My uncle was a huge James Bond fan. So I I'd like some of the older Bonds that I had seen bits and pieces of or the ones that I had seen. Uh, he had shown me them in the past and I told him we were doing this and watching it and he was just like oh he, he loves the Timothy Dalton ones apparently he was and he was like you know he was like I actually he was like everyone likes to talk about how the new movies are like really inspired by the Bourne franchise now he was like but I actually think like these Living Daylight movies are kind of like if you look at Bourne where they take some of that from and then I started thinking about it and th- when they're fighting in like the car and like they're going and, like he's kicking him out the window and I'm just like, this action actually is, like, really physical right now in a way that, like, all the older Bonds, when they did the physical action, um, the sense of space was all over the place, and it was, like, always oddly slow. And I was like, oh, this feels, this does feel, like, way more hand-to-hand. And I wonder if we actually feel the way we do about, like, the Bourne stuff influencing Craig so much simply because Brosnan's Bond was so gadget weapon-heavy that, like, he lost a lot of the physicality. That was in some of the earlier bonds. Yeah, no, I think there's, I think there's definitely something to that where, you know, this one feels like a blend between the two of yeah. Bros and, and Craig. I would say like these movie, this movie, and then 
get ready to watch License to Kill because it's going to be <laughs> fucking wild. But um, that's where it goes super dark. And and so that better have a good body count if it's going to have that. It does. Here. It has a All crazy right. body count. <laughs> that's what I was. But the way you were just saying that, I'm like, this is going to be. But good. anyway, so like, but this I think is a reflection of what was really popular time. Stallone, Schwarzenegger, big 80s action movies. Mm. You can kind of see those influences here. Where it's like these also like big set pieces with airplanes and trucks and horses and, and, you know, these kind of stuff going on at the end. And like you kind of felt you're a little bit watching Commando at some point. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he Um, feels, I mean, especially with the way they introduce it, he feels more like a soldier than ever. Yeah, so I think there's definitely a transition and reflection of what are popular at the time. And, And then, but then I think it's not until Brosnan do we get like, an actual auteur filmmaker coming in and filming it correctly in a weird way. I, th- I feel like the action in this is good. It's just a, li- it's not, it's a little more generic in terms of the film language as opposed to more modern movie and the more modern. Bonds. Sure. Yeah. So that's like, I think the, that's where you're, you're starting to see that transition into the modern. Yeah. This is the transition period for sure. Yeah. Where it's like you, you almost like the content is, is, modern but then the look of it still kind of has an older look to it and the way it's filmed and framed i think still kind of has that older thing to it anyway so um so the short story like the living daylights basically is what this next section is coming up after um this is and this is when they are rescuing general koskoff from czechoslovakia and there's this whole thing with they're at the opera and he's going to defect and bond's been assigned to this uh i think saunders uh he's working with saunders because koskov has requested bond to help him defect um and so the short story is basically this is he he's helping this guy defect and there's going to be a an assassin looking to shoot him oh it's like actually it's exactly the same thing and so wow. he, and he sees that it's this beautiful woman that was like the cellist at the at the thing and so instead of shooting her he uh you know, shoots the butt of a rifle and, and scares her. And, and then that's where the living daylights come from. He's like, I scared the living daylights out of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that, yeah, so this uh, whole scene's all, this is what basically is taken directly from the short story. Um, and, you know, we're introduced to Saunders, who's super British and just super like, this is my mission bond. You're not taking it from me. Um, we meet Koskoff. Who I don't know if you recognize him, but he's the bad guy from The Fugitive, the oh Dr. I didn't Nichols. recognize that. I did not know. Yes, Doctor Nichols. Hello. <laughs> but uh, and then we also introduced to Kara, uh, played by Maram Diabo, who I will just say over top, I really like Kara overall. Yeah, I she's think good. She's like hot but plain in this kind of cute way, in it, yeah. which is nice. Um, and then, but you know, I think she's not, she's a little boring though. I think personality wise, um, I'm glad they like give her some stuff to do by the end. Otherwise she's just kind of like, well, she's not, she's not a femme fatale. No. And there's no femme fatale you know? in this movie. Yeah. Like that's, it's, it, they kind of dropped that trope for this movie. The only like, femme fatale. They still have dangerous women, but it's not the femme fatale stereotype. The, the only femme fatale is basically Saunders. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> he's basically the femme fatale but um you know he's very good looking man (laughs) but yeah i I feel like you know i think there's a they went with a different type of both bond girl and i think other characters in this that i think i think overall i think it works overall um yeah but yeah um 
twice in this movie, uh, boobs are used to distract guards. <laughs> the first time is when they're sneaking cough scoff out to uh, out of this pipeline, which is pretty cool. And, he, and that one uh, Russian uh, or I think Czechoslovakian woman uses her body to distract the uh, the guy at the pipeline ceremony. Um, which which I mean we've just discussed before. I think if you just completely drop that because we're like worried about objectification. You're dropping what is like one of the most common ways that spies utilize. Like, it's one of the most common espionage skills. Is is like sex. Yeah, <laughs> it's like literally. This is this is things spies have written about and talked about. Uh, it would be so weird. Now, of course, the way they do it sometimes a little cheesy. I mean, it's not quite the uh, boob cam from the last movie. No, but <laughs> that's like see, but see, there's a difference between like that, which is like just basically objectifying a woman. Yes. Who's just sitting there. And this one's like both character. Oh, maybe at least the first one here. She's like act willingly helping Bond. And it's her idea. It's like, I'm going to distract right. the head guy here and, and while you ship him out. And that's her. Yeah, exactly. And that's her being like, I'm going to use this. Like, she's like, I know I can get us by here yeah. because I like I'm equipped with a tool that no one else is. And it's not deadly and it's not dangerous. And I can do this. Yeah. Uh, we get a small uh, brief shot of a Harrier jet here. Um, remember those were like all the rage back in like the late eighties, early nineties. Just like, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm just thinking of um, was it True Lies? You know, Schwarzenegger and Cameron just using a Harrier oh. jet at the end of that thing. Yeah, that. You know, I was just thinking because I brought up the Cold War for this. Do you yeah. think part of the reason of all these action movies is like just pent up like aggression and like everyone like, you know, we're in this endless arms race and we have all these weapons, but then they're not like being used. So like we're we're creating like fiction where there like is an enemy to like use all these things that we've told people for decades we were going to need. Yeah. And it's like, no, see, we do need them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, it's totally makes sense. I mean, you're just describing basically what happened in World War One, which was all these countries had all these all these armies and all this, you know, technology that they wanted to use. And like war was inevitable basically because it was just a tinderbox yeah. waiting to explode. So at least now we have, you know, media to channel our energy. That's <laughs> into, true. Into this stuff. And like people aren't as itching to go to war because we can go to war in the movies and TV. Right. So, but yeah, I think you're, you're definitely seeing a, like I said, with, kind of reflection of these of the 80s action movies a sort of let's show off like a lot of cool military might you know and, and all this technology and stuff um as a beyond just like the bond gadgets itself um particularly i think particularly at the end when they're at the the russian base in afghanistan it's like oh yeah there's just a lot of sort of military hardware being used here all around um but yeah so According to Koskoff, you know, there's a new uh, new guy, basically, as a new head of KGB, uh, Pushkin, played by John Rhys-Davies, who you may recognize as Gimli or as Sala from Indiana Jones, um, who's great. He's great in this movie. I like Pushkin. Um, yeah, Pushkin's cool. Which he's at, It's a good name. And he also is also. in, he's in GoldenEye. So oh. he's not, not the same, he's not the same actor, but the same character as a carryover. I think that's fine. I think using the same actor cross bond generation fine using same actor inter bond generation different character weird well we see that with the like well so there's many villains in this movie so let's just kind of sure. run through them so we have koskoff who 
essentially he he's the the you think he's good he's at the first primary in a way you think he's the good guy but and Pushkin's the bad guy but then they're flipping it and Koskov and the and the one is being the bad guy you have Necros who is the just you know basically hired muscle the the assassin um, which we can dive into him as pretty at length because I I actually love this guy Necros because he's just like this weird tall Aryan man that like likes to dress up in like tennis outfits and listen to the pretenders as he like kills people. He's such mm-hmm. a, he's such a, like a very specifically designed character for what this is, <laughs> but I love it. So, um, I love Necros. Uh, and then finally we have, I guess the overall villain, which is the villain with probably the, like the blandest name ever, Brad Whitaker. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Played by Joe Don Baker, who, like you just set up here, he plays the villain in this one. We see him, two, we'll see him two movies later in GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies as uh, Wade, basically the Felix Leiter character of those movies. So again, this is like a continuing theme of these movies of they hire an actor initially for one role, they like him, and they're like, let's bring you back for another role later. <laughs> Broccoli loves his boys. Yeah, he, li- he did with Maude Adams. He did it with uh, what's that guy who played Blofeld? You know, it's just right. You know, it's it happens. So, um, but you know, what what do you think of Joe Don Baker as Whitaker? Well, so when you first meet him, it wasn't clear that he was going to be the main bad guy because yeah. he's just an arms dealer, and it's kind of like, I mean, that character isn't always like they are bad guys, but they're not necessarily the bad guy. Yeah, and I don't know. He doesn't really seem threatening. He's just like a freak. He's just like a weird dude. He's just like a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like a... He's like, like a, he just... He, he's just like... He's an outcast. Yeah. Right? But you could almost... I, I feel like you could have cut him from this movie and it would not have changed anything because you could have had Koskoff and Necros running the whole operation. Yeah. And that could have been just fine. I think, I think they needed it to just set up this whole thing with there was the Russians were working with Whitaker for an arms deal that like they gave him a bunch of money and then Pushkin was like, I want my money back. And so then they were had to work out this deal with heroin and diamonds to to pay the money back before they Well, I think and you're right from a plot perspective that's true. But I, I think actually it takes away from the messaging of the movie because with this being during the time that it is, his character is sort of integral in the kind of like Hey, like these wars are just like these two countries, like being run by like a handful of dudes who are just like whatever business deal, like it benefits me kind of a thing. And we're all having to pay for it. And it just like ropes other people into it. It's like he's kind of like the businessman who's actually the piece of shit behind everything. But like he's not sort of the scary dude in a way. And so that's. It like it, it's kind of like how like these businesses like how government can enable bad things like I think without his face there that's like a little more unclear. Yeah, no, I think you do actually need it now that I think about it more because I think what it's kind of actually really cool to watch this from a modern perspective because I think what the the movie is saying overall is that like the real threat is the military industrial complex. Yeah, and so. And and the capitalism basically of like gonna drive conflict and drive war because without like they don't obviously have hindsight here but they kind of predict a lot of things that are still going on today particularly with you know 
the, the third act of this movie takes place in Afghanistan and Bond is essentially working with the Mujahideen, who, which ends up becoming both the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And it's interesting in this way, like, so what's being set up in this movie, it's like we're seeing the ramifications of it, like, in our real world today as well. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's, and that's like Shmir, right? Like, yeah. the, the reactivation of Shmir is, like, just the escalation of being like, oh, if we're going to start working together, this is a problem because that means we might be out of a job. Like, if we're not enemies, who is our enemy? Like, we got to have proxy wars. We got we to gotta start creating uh, disturbances in other places in the world so that we can fight wars there and enable other people to fight. But, like, that's, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's like it's these industries and these people that want to make money off of weapons and and conflict, those are the people that are going to be driving conflict, not necessarily individual countries um per se and it's like we're we're ending in like this is like marking the the post cold war era as you know a few years later after this movie essentially the soviet union collapses you know america's really the only superpower left and then it's like you enter this different world of now you know both a lot of like a really high military industrial complex a lot of weapons dealing and a lot of like terrorist groups and all these other things kind of propping up and going everywhere so. right it's uh, it's um it's really interesting and i mean obviously like the, the spin we're putting on it now is like you said hindsight in a way but i do think that they intended that to an extent obviously not as forward because it's not like a point that they necessarily make but yeah. it's clear like when they wrote that character the writer of this movie was just like fuck these guys making all these wars <laughs> you know like it's yeah. like because why else would he be there yeah and yeah, because he's just kind of like this little. You need nerd. a benefactor. He's like this nerdy need... <laughs> little boy that got kicked out of West Point and like now is like basically running Blackwater, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and he just loves all his toys. He has all these like toys that he invests in that he wants to use and likes to. <laughs> I love how he he's like, I'm gonna buy a bunch of mannequins that look like me so I can dress myself up as Hitler and Genghis Khan and and Napoleon and all these other people. That he, I guess, values as leaders, military leaders. This is like something someone else might do. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there are some weird echoes to uh, to modern day here with, with Whitaker. Even though I do think overall, I think he's written as a non-threatening kind of weird character. So Maybe yeah. this is why this movie feels so much more grounded. And it's not just because there isn't like some weird sci-fi elements and things to it. But maybe it's because of like they very clearly like they were like oh we have a real world message kind of in this story and it's not just we need a super spy to take down super bad guys it's yeah. like we have spies to like run these fights and do these things so that we don't have these wars but the only reason we have to have these things is because there's these other guys who want to profit yeah no yeah i, I think it's i agree i think it's also just because he's not in the movie that much yeah, he's, totally. And, and and he doesn't have a direct confrontation with Bond until the very end. Where it's totally. Like a, it's like a tag scene. So I think that's why he doesn't feel as important to the story. Whereas like, but I think he is important into the overall broad message of the movie or like just like the overall plot, even if it really is Koskos and, and Necros's movie. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised considering the fact that he's still that he's in it and for as little as he was, I wouldn't be surprised if there was originally more written for him that didn't make it into just because for how little he's in it. Yeah, I like to imagine that at the end when that statue falls on him and kills him, it doesn't kill him. It just causes him amnesia and he is reinvented as Wade. And (laughs) so it's the same guy in the movies. It's just like he's been reintegrated into the U.S. and like in the CIA. I had watched all those like six months ago or something, and I didn't put two and two together that like Wade was the other, was like yeah. Brosnan Felix for some dumb reason. And I also didn't notice it was the same dude until you just mentioned it. I was like, oh, wait, yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, let's knock off some other things really quick. Uh, what do you think of the new Money Penny? It's fine. She's like, she reminded me of Jamie Lee Curtis for some reason. Oh, okay. You know, it's like, yeah, it's also weird that she was never actually working it near M's office. Like she seemed almost like Q's secretary. Like I, the more I think about Money Penny, the more I realize, like, you know how we've, we've talked about the sort of like uh murderer's row of like random side characters in Bond that yeah. they need to pull from. Money Penny is like one of the most underrealized mainstays in the Bond franchise yeah and i would love them to do something with that character even if they reinvent it because why have her there if she's always kind of so detached really from the main plot and especially with this one they they so this is the first time lois maxwell is not money penny she she had been it for all the other movies prior to this this is the first time they've actually recasted her yeah Um, we had old money penny for a bit there (laughs) Yeah, but I think it, it, it so it set up an d- interesting dynamic where like Lois Maxwell's Money Penny, she always kind of felt like she knew that Bond was never the like the right guy for her. Like she liked to tease and like play flirt and like play along with uh, you know, with his advances and just kind of go toe to toe with him. But she never like, I never got the sense that she like would she she would fall for him necessarily. This Carolyn Bliss's version of Money Penny, it's like she is crushing hard on Dalton, and for this movie, and so it's a very interesting choice that they decided to to make her more of a like gushing fangirl over Bond. I think I think maybe the part of that too was just from the fact that the it's not a very light movie, so the unique kind of like breaks. Yeah, and with them kind of pulling from some of the older Bond books as well, like it being. This really is like very directly feels like the books in many ways. Um, Money Penny was like a bit more of like a close character to Bond in a way. So they were like, oh, let's just let's really make this character feel different. Maybe I don't know. No, I think they wanted to go a different direction. I just I'm so used to the the Lois Maxwell version, oh, yeah. which I think is br- <laughs> and it's kind of brought back when they go with Samantha Bond. I think they bring that back quite a bit um, in in Goldeneye and stuff. And so this feels like a, a almost like a completely different character in a lot of ways um and i don't know if it's necessarily it's for better or worse but i get why like you as you said it does add a little bit of lightness to the movie and um with a normally dark movie speaking of q i was gonna say before we say q actually i'm sorry because i just got an idea yeah okay here's what i want to see with money penny and we got this a little bit i feel like with m in skyfall where like like by this point because jane judy dance was such a beloved m that I think the audience liked the character so much that we all felt like Bond and M had such a close relationship, but really like Bond and M have never really had this like super tight relationship. That was like, 
I would like to see Money Penny become that in the future. I would like Money Penny to be this character that's like always been Bond's coworker in a way, but like it's like Bond's office friend or office wife. It's like Bond's office coworker because anytime Bond has these sort of like mental anguish breaks, M would be the best person. I would. I mean, I would love to see. I mean, Money Penny would be the best person. I'd love to see that character like have these like quiet moments where like. Hey, do you remember like when you first started at the office and like you got in there and like I took you out, we had lunch. Like I would love to see like moments like that where Bond has like a friend. Like Money Penny makes the most sense for Bond's friend. And like to like ground Bond like in like a real place, you know? Like to make it feel like he actually lives there and he's not this like enigma that shows up whenever there's a mission and then who knows like what does he do when he's not killing someone or like spying? Yeah. Like that would be cool. Yeah. That would be very cool. Yeah, like someone like not like he can confide in and sort of be real with at yeah. times and talk about his feelings. Yeah, that I, that would be such a and then that would be like the perfect reason also for Money Penny to always kind of keep Bond at an arm's distance. It's like yeah, maybe we'll hook up or this or that, but like I know you too well and I know like you're messed up and like I, we're never gonna be a thing for that reason. But like I'm always gonna care about you. That is what I want to see with that character. That's good. That's a good pitch. I, I, I definitely could get behind that. So. <laughs> <laughs> it just came to me i had to share it yeah um good. i love q man he's looking he's he's starting to look like santa claus yeah he's it, getting it, he, he's this is like i think the first like, i guess he's kind of in the last few he's been a little old but um yeah i think he, i think he's got some cool he's got some charming things in this one um when oh, he's yeah. sh- when he's showing bond off to that uh the bracelet or the thing that sets off the gas with him with the gas mask is really cute um though it's like kind of funny that he's activating this stun gas in in a closed <laughs> quarter indoor sure. environment sure <laughs> yeah and that was really funny and then he got the whole this the boombox rocket launcher gag yeah very of a time <laughs> i call it a ghetto blaster for the oh americans God. Um, yeah. yeah this is this is where he and the, the reason i call it santa claus like santa shows up like and delivers you toys and this is why Q's always been fa- my, like, favorite thing. This is, like, really when, as he's becoming older, he's starting to feel that way. Because he, when he used to be mad, he actually used to genuinely seem to dislike Bond. And now it feels more like, oh, I'm here to bring you more gifts again. And, like, don't you go break them. I think it's, is it because, so I think because they've re- they're, this is a new actor now as Bond. Mm-hmm. Working with Q it kind of resets the relationship a little bit. And now he's like much, seems much older than Bond and has this kind of, like you said, sort of Santa Claus, almost like benevolent sort of father figure-ish kind of thing going on. Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, whereas like with Moore, it's like Moore felt like either they were like brothers. And, oh, yeah. And same thing with Connery. It's like they felt like they were siblings and there was a little bit of a rivalry thing where it's like Bond was always like the more suave, more beautiful handsome you know brother that would always break the other brother's stuff you know yes <laughs> yes and it, it always like when q would be annoyed or mad it like it it felt genuine like he like it sometimes felt like he was like why do i have to work with this guy that's yeah. what it, it seemed like and now it's like and we get in these movies going forward it's like more like he appreciates and like bond i think for what he is and he isn't so like please don't break anything. It's like, and, yeah. more, and more now it's like, hey, you know, I understand now you're probably going to have to break most of my stuff, but you know what? It's fine. 
<laughs> just like I really liked making this one. So if it comes back in one piece, I would love it, but I know it probably won't. Yeah. <laughs> uh what do you think about the car? Um the car's all right. It's uh, the Aston Martin so, Vantage Volante. I actually so I I really like them using the Aston Martins just yeah. because I like the idea that they I like the concept that they have one brand of car. I don't know why, because I'm not a car guy. I don't actually care about Aston Martins, but there's something in my head of like, oh, it'd be cool if like it's just always been and will always be the Aston Martin. I hope that's something that they like just stick to it at this point. But uh, it, it's 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 good because you don't see them on the road. No, they're and, kind of a rare car. Yeah. For the most and part. It, it's not like some stupid, crazy sports car that looks like high. You know, it's yeah. like... It's classy. Well, this one is interesting because it's this ver the, the Volante. It looks like a Mustang, right? And that's why this one is fine. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> because but, I'm like, well, it's the S Martin, which is what I want. But yeah, so, which is, but I, what I like about it is they they put it in an environment where I think it looks natural, which is like snow, ski, like yeah. I, ice, kind of. Whereas like if this was more. Uh, where other you know Aston Martins are used, I don't think it would look as good. But I think it, I think it works no. well for the environment that it's in. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, um, and then yeah, so he Bond, you know, basically, I think in terms of tracking down what's happening, he follows his lead with Kara, goes to Czechoslovakia, helps her escape to Vienna. Uh, a note, so that like cello that she has, like they mentioned, it's a Stradivari. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like that thing is probably worth millions of dollars today. Yes, that was a thing. That's like I know. Last week we last time we talked about Fabergé eggs. Uh, <laughs> you know, and this time we're talking about very expensive uh, orchestral instruments. <laughs> very specific brand. It's uh, very old-fashioned kind of thing. But you know, Bond has to use it as a uh, paddle, and <laughs> and uh, sometimes he uses it as a uh, way to try to block bullets. <laughs> while they're being shot at <laughs> which like that's rough because it's not like this is the american military budget where it's like oh whatever we'll just use we'll, we'll use like 50 missiles today each one's like 11 million dollars mbd like who cares no one cares about the cost of that cello if it was here but over there that is gonna be a problem it's very very expensive um what's interesting about this movie too is that this one is like the only one and this ties into dalton seeming a little cold, seeming a little different, not as charming, is that he kind of gets friend-zoned by Kara for a long portions of this movie <laughs> because he is impersonating Kafskaf's friend. Like He's like, I'm Kafskaf's friend, I'm here to get yeah. you out because she is, has a relationship with Kafskaf, really. It's kind of like a weird sugar daddy situation between them because she invested in her as a cellist and bought her a bunch of stuff, bought her that Stradivarsky, you know, cello, so... She's in love, sort of in love with him, and then Bond kind of steps in, and you can tell that he really, really likes her, but he has to play up this whole thing, so he does get friend-zoned for a majority of this movie, which is, I think, really funny um, to see, and it's actually, I think, feels more natural in a lot of ways, whereas, like, with Moore, you know, as much as we love him, he, it's like he could just snap his fingers, and, like, any woman he was next to would be like, oh, James, you know? <laughs> it... The other thing, though, I think about it because, like, she's not there just to screw around. Like, she's no. got things to do. Yeah. So I think even if she knew who he was, I don't know if uh, she would have been swooning until later anyway. Yeah, no, I think she's, I think they set her up nicely that she's, 
like she's a scared she's afraid she was like forced to basically shoot like fire a gun you know blanks on her on the person that she shot she loved she didn't realize she was playing this whole game and so um i think they play it really naturally it kind of it feels almost like a rom-com relationship that's developing as like almost the b plot of the movie that culminates in when they're at the fair or at that that circus thing or if the whatever the ferris wheel stuff and so where but you don't have the fallout because when bond reveals who he is it's like that's when Koskoff basically reveals who he is and so it's like she immediately then joins bond's side so it's not like there's a right. fallout there which is great um let's see uh, notable things other than i guess czechoslovakia and then they go to tangier um and then all the third act is in afghanistan um i don't know anything any any other big things before we get to like the kind of afghanistan stuff anything else between then for you um no i feel like most of that stuff can be skipped over until you get to afghanistan i mean honestly like the everything that happens feels kind of purposeful and important on its own scale in the movie but because there aren't and maybe this is because i really enjoy the movie but like weirdly it, feel, it, it just feels so different than all the recent James Bond movies that had come out like prior to this. Maybe it's because it doesn't have the same sense of scale. It's like we're just stopping arms dealers. It doesn't, there's, doesn't feel like this sort of necessary like end of the world no, kind yeah. of a situation. And so because of that, it's like you could so easily just be like, and then they went here and then they went there and they grabbed this thing. And then like you could outside of the big set pieces. Yeah. Like the big set pieces were good. And obviously like once you get to the climax, like on the plane and everything like that, like all that is great. But the kind of interstitial moments of the plot, which is like a big section of it, um, they're very straightforward, is I guess what it would be. It's yeah. very straightforward. It's not. There aren't really a lot of surprises at that point. No, um, not too many surprises. Just a couple of things I wanted to bring up is um, Necros using that like crazy automatic door to kill Saunders with. Oh yes, <laughs> like that was a. I was like, what mach- like what what high powered like steam powered like push machine is creating that that tour? Yeah, some hydraulic <laughs> that like can be easily like at, like tinkered with from the outside, which is I think sort of a crazy way to kill somebody. Necros is still such a wild name for such a grounded movie character. Yeah, I mean, well, if, if, yeah, I, if, I, a, a, if I was a if I was a like mercenary assassin, I'd come up with a cool like. It's almost superhero name as my like moniker. Yeah, but Necros, it's like like Necro. It's like come on, like that feels that feels too modern. Not for the eighties. In the eighties, he'd be like, you know, he'd be like Falcon. <laughs> you know, it would be something like it. I mean, that's what this movie is. Like, it's, everything was very very straightforward, very on the nose in yeah. a way. Yeah, I think it's just like. I get that. I, I get you kind of have, but you kind of do have to have an interesting, weird character like Necros in this movie as well. He is, you know, he is a weird with, character. with like exploding <laughs> milk bottles and, you know, using his, uh, he loved using his, um, his headset wire as a choke grabber. He's kind of, he's a very practical assassin. Yeah, what, is, what is that cable made of? That ain't, that ain't just regular old <laughs> copper. No. That is the. That is some strong cable he's got in there. Yeah, he has he has some very unconventional weapons that he uses to kill things, uh, people with. So, um, I just wanted to bring up the the sliding door death, uh, which is cool. Um, then, like I, I mentioned before, the other thing was when 
Bond thinks that Pushkin ordered the death of Saunders. So he goes to basically retaliate and kill him, ends up learning that like Pushkin had nothing to do with it, learning about Whitaker and all that stuff. Um, like I mentioned, Bond uses another woman, a naked woman, to distract Pushkin's guard to to knock him out, which is like, you know, Bond using what practically in the room at the time to to get an edge on the on the fight, which was interesting. Uh, it's great. And then, yeah, so Afghanistan. Bond gets knocked out. Him and Kara get taken as part of uh, they're going to go deliver these diamonds to trade them for heroin. Uh, you know, so Bond, you know, him and Kara, them and Kara, they escape their prison. They also let this guy out, Cameron Saw, out, out of the prison too, ends up being part of the Mujahideen, helps him escape. I just wanted to point out the part where Bond realizes what's going on as far as the deal for diamonds for heroin. Uh, he uses his knife to cut open to that bag and he takes a giant hit of just pure opium and he's like it's it's, yeah, it's heroin it's opium and then i'm like yeah he would have been knocked the fuck out <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of the movie if you took it that like it's just a, even though it's just a lick like yeah that concentrated oof. not a, not a pure bomb pillin man Maybe that's why he was acting so slow when he's piloting that plane. He's just like, it's all hitting him at the same time. <laughs> Very clearly is. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about this whole uh, airbase battle at the end? Um, so I really like the airbase battle. Uh, I'm trying to like go back over it in my head. So he and Kara escape the plane before the explosion. He, yes. After they, you mean after they, they've, they're already in the air, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, so... So, like, like he sets the bomb originally. He was just going to blow that bitch up and bail, and then instead he ends up doing this other stuff. And yeah. Was she in danger in his original plan? Was she screwed? No, so... Okay, so here's a thing. I think I, I think I lost track of the character okay, for let, a second. Okay, yeah, let's... So, Bond sneaks into... Like, so after the deal, Bond sneaks into the back of the truck with all the heroin. Right. Back to the airbase. Kara is left with the Mujahideen. Right. Then Which is dangerous. <laughs> yeah but apparently they're like they're totally cool guys um, yeah no they're chill um but then but then so then she convinces them to go to the airbase mm-hmm. with them to attack um bond sneaks up to the let me see uh so while every uh, the heroine's being loaded on the plane bond sneaks onto the plane to set the bomb but is too late in terms of they they're done loading so they're like closed at the plane he ends up being trapped on the plane, so he starts shooting his way out. At that time, that's when the Mujahideen attack. So then all that chaos breaks out on the, on the thing. Bond takes over the plane as far as and starts He's just going to fly it out of there. That's his like that's his his sort of uh, on the fly change of plans. It's like I'm not to, I'm not going to blow up the plane. Maybe I'll, I'll deactivate the bomb in a second. I'm going to fly it out. Um, Kara gets impatient, I guess, and so then she's like, I'm just going to drive this jeep up. I love when Bond's like he kind of motions to her like get like drive it up the back and she's like oh okay <laughs> without any audio uh, which is really funny so she drives the plane the the jeep into the back Necros jumps on the plane as well as it takes off and then Bond thinks that they're in the clear and he's like oh I'm gonna go deactivate the bomb now that's when he goes to the back that's when he encounters Necros that's when they have the big fight they're dangling out the back of the plane. Necros kicks him off, 
gets back on, then realizes the bomb's about to go off, and he turns it off with like two seconds left. So that's, I think, the the way I've breaking down the uh, timeline. <laughs> so I, th I think it was like he always was planning to turn off the bomb. He just, like, after he got on the plane and realized he was stuck on the plane and he had to take off with it, he was going to eventually deactivate it. But then what was the point necessarily of having the bomb? Because he felt like he wasn't going to... He was just going to set on the bomb and just blow up the heroin. Yeah. And just blow up the deal. Yeah. Yeah. So like, because, okay. like he felt like, at least I can do that. If, yeah. I, if I can't, like, stop them completely and, like... It was his backup plan. Yeah. yeah, that was, like, his... It's wild, man. Yeah. <laughs> Almost takes himself out. <laughs> I mean, it's cool. It's, it's got a lot of layers to it, which I like. And it, it feels like... It's kind of cool to have a, oh, yeah. you defeat the villain, and then like, and then he's kind of sitting there, and he's all of a sudden hears the beeping. He's like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, shit. <laughs> and he turns it off. I, I forgot like what happens. I thought he was gonna try to throw it out of the plane, but then I realized like, oh, okay, he just turns it off. <laughs> what is the uh, the bag that they put him in? The like they look like um, like little like medical like like yeah. service packages bag, you know, like that like the American Red Cross would send out or something. So like send him back in the bag. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean oh at the end the diplomatic bag? Yeah, the diplomatic bag. Oh yeah, so that's like a thing where you, I guess ambassadors or people that are like traveling to countries, they have like uh -huh. what they call a diplomatic bag, which they can put in anything in it, and like you know people can't like the you don't look at it. Yeah, they yeah. they don't get to check that the country doesn't check. Bro, that's sick. <laughs> Imagine putting a body in one of those. That's amazing. <laughs> I just I just love the idea that it's like there are people in this world that have like a bag or a box and no one is legally allowed to look into you can I mean if you like that you, you should watch Lethal Weapon 2 and the whole <laughs> plot of that movie is about a, a like diplomat that has diplomatic immunity like going, uh, going yeah. around and killing people that's wild man and so he's like I have diplomatic immunity and so I guess that was a, a thing back in, in the 80s people loved yeah. it, like this plot point um, but yeah, so I, I you know, I, I, I was cool with the, when they land, when they have to get out of the plane. So like she drives the Jeep up the thing and I guess parks it in that, like, it's like a, a compartment that will allow you to parachute out of it if you need to. And so they use that to escape the plane. They fly it low enough and then they release the parachute and it like shoots it. Like he, he jumps into that Jeep Bond does right at the last second, right when it's like <laughs> flying out of that thing. You say the last second. I say the right second. Oh, that's job. true. That's true. The right second for the shot. Yeah, uh, but that's cool. And then, then the plane crashes and destroys the rest of the heroin, and they they destroyed uh, half a billion dollars in heroin, as uh, Whitaker would say. Yeah, but um, but yeah. And then he gets the girl. He gets the girl, and they go to Karachi to have dinner. <laughs> <laughs> to have dinner. As funny as like, I know a good restaurant in Karachi. We can make it there by dinner. This this bond of all bonds, I actually could picture being like out on a date. <laughs> he does feel like even though he is cold and a little and not as charming as Moore or Connery or something, that's like he does have a, a groundedness to him, and they like like does feel sometimes a little sensitivity, but not in like a. He he does he, he, you feel like there's something. He just seems like someone that's been in the military. Like he's just like a soldier. Like he takes orders and he does stuff. And like yeah. he doesn't. He does, it feels like he doesn't like have like a lot of his own opinions. He's just kind of like, all right, I just need to go do the thing. And then like it's done. He's like, I want food. Like you want food? Oh, I, I have a, like I don't. 
I'm sure it's happened, but like you don't usually think about Bond being like, oh, I have this, I love this one restaurant. Like, like yeah, that's not a thing you hear. Oh well, yeah, he seems like a like he like he's like he said he's a soldier, but then he seems like he's great at dinner parties. Yeah, like, yeah, he can he can turn on that type of thing, but but it's not like the other Bonds in that way. Whereas like when we get to Brosnan, the way he like bite kisses women is so like he he's so passionate and so like, oh yeah he's, he's, he's the a, sexiest bond he's like an animal but uh, yeah you know it, it you know but but there are similarities between brosnan and dalton here but uh but yeah i still i really want to see them bring brosnan back and be a villain sometime <laughs> i feel yeah. like dalton could play a good m dalton would be a great m very straightforward kind of cold but not a bad guy like he could just you know I mean, he doesn't look, honestly, like current Dalton just looks like an older version of the current M right now, <laughs> to be fair. I could see it, yeah. No, and I'm, I'm thinking it. No, it would be cool, like, in a, in a new thing, if in a new Bond, they re, you know, whatever actor they cast, Dalton is M and Brosnan is Q. What do, you, what do you think about, like, old Brosnan with a beard as, like, a professorial, like, Q version of that character? I'm super into it. I'm super, super into that. Or Jeffrey Wright is Q. Either one. I would also take Jeffrey Wright as but Q. But is Jeffrey Wright British? No, but... So he has to be... I like he Jeffrey has to be, Wright. Uh, yeah, that's Felix. fair. How about this? How about this? If we're pitching things for future James Bond. Um, and they could just do it... If they go campy with it, let's say they go they go campy Bond again, they go back to Brosnan camp and stuff. They go campy Bond, they do a movie where... They have Dalton, they have Craig, and they have Brosnan, and they're the three bad dudes. And, like, Dalton's the head of the bad guys. And, like, Brosnan is maybe, like, the businessy, like, he's, like, he's, like, evil Q, and Craig could be, like, sort of, like, the treble in, like, like the, you know, I, I want to see, like, the three old Bonds together yeah. as villains. <laughs> they would never do that, but that makes, you know. No, but it'd be sick, because imagine, like, you have the new Bond kill the old Bonds. That would be awesome. Yeah, apparently in Skyfall, in the like really early discussions about the story that they were coming up with, the the place they go, his ancestral home that they go to at the end, was going to be where all the retired Bonds are, and they would have all the actors there. Oh, they would have Connery, Moore, Dalton, Brosnan, Lazenby, oh. all of them would be there. So that was that was when they were trying to decide if they were going to like go with the whole like no Bond, James Bond is like a title, yeah, not a yeah. I don't I I used to like that idea when I didn't know about James Bond and now that I know like and then after also they like gave him a history like you know and everything like that I'm like no actually he's a real character now yeah like I, he I kind of always has been I think they just need to find a balance of I think he's a character with a continuing storyline but that also it's not a a, a t airtight storyline in terms of yeah. I think they can have loose adaptations and remake same stories again and yeah, it's not totally. all within necessarily the same universe. It's just like uh, the technology, the culture, the the play. Like I mean, think about it. Like uh, Russia was like enemy number one, and then no one was thinking about Russia as enemy, and now Russia's enemy. Like things just change so much over the decades. The idea that they can just reboot it and be like, "Cool, new James Bond." I'm totally into that. That's the way to go. I think. Yeah. Don't make it a title. Let him be his own like real person. Definitely. Any other remaining thoughts on the Living Daylights? No, I'm excited for License to Kill now, though. Yeah, that's when it goes full-blown, let's embrace violent 80s action movies. And let's, Hell yeah. Let's go. It's, it's going to be wild when you see it. Let's um, do it. 
<laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. So, you know, thank you everyone again for joining us on this wonderful journey into the living daylights, and we will see you next time for License to Kill.